I'm flying Seattle to Amsterdam over the pole. No matter what concerns and troubles fill my workaday life, my plane leaves them grunting and tripping over each other on the hometown runway. Already, we're halfway there. I scan the horizon from my window seat, looking for the aurora borealis, elusive flaming dancers that hint of a great faraway party you have to travel to find. They danced for me on my first flight to Europe. In 30 over-the-pole flights since, I've searched the horizon and not seen even a flicker. But I found my party. It's Europe. Each summer, I distill my material world into a carry-on-the-plane-sized bag. I leave our brash young land of God-given and self-evident truths for a refresher course in good living. For me, good living is freedom. It's packing light with an open mind and an empty journal. Usually, I spend the flight reviewing the names and medical problems of my tour flock or organizing feedback I've received from guidebook readers into research notes. But this trip is different. No tour group to shepherd around, no guidebook research with days spent scrambling for budget hotels and museum tips. This trip will be a pirate's punch of travel memories, blending experiences past and present into one fiery brew, Akavit to Uzo chased by Grappa. Our lives are rainbows that we paint ourselves, and when I stop traveling, I stop arcing upward. Someday, I'll dream less of next year's trip and rely more on the slide carousels and journals of past adventures. But even though I'm older now, and more of a father figure than a travel buddy in youth hostels these days, I still have a need for empty passport pages. Europe has also changed over the last 25 years. France and Britain now hold hands beneath the channel. One-legged reminders of the Great War are forgotten. Old Nazis no longer spit Siegheil at tourists in the Munich beer halls. Mickey Mouse speaks French. And signs for McDonald's and sex shops share the same Copenhagen lamppost. With the breakup of Yugoslavia, lovers of Europe can no longer name all its capitals. And the acid that infiltrates Athens' air has chased the Parthenon statues indoors. But it's the same Europe as well. Dolphins playfully race Aegean ferries into the sunset. Oslo's fjord-weary fishermen still peddle tins of shrimp from their boats. Irish fiddlers stomp the paint off pub floors, and Italians still wave, baby-style, seemingly at themselves when they say ciao. Of course, getting to the party still requires enduring a long flight. The man in front of me, in window seat 27A, slams his seat back as if trying to crunch my laptop screen off its keyboard. The woman on my right who has taped all my TV shows, spends most of Greenland trying to convince me we're all going to get sick from breathing the plane's recycled air. Struggling to face me in her too tight middle seat, she says, it's a cocktail of germs. She rubs a fingerful of Vaseline around the inside of her nostrils with one hand and offers me the jar with the other. Germs settle on the tender skin in here, she says. This gel blocks them out. Even as the wet wind of a cough from the man behind me ruffles my hair, I politely refuse. All the way to Iceland, I wonder, with each breath, whose germs are becoming mine. The boy in 29C is lost in his headphones, sharing only the tsh, tsh sound of tunes that would melt heavy metal. I look out the window, longing for those flaming dancers, or Europe. Too tall for my seat, my head bent back like that of a wide-open Pez dispenser, I snooze through the movie. In the haze of sleep, my mind beats the plane to Europe. A passenger's sneeze becomes the moist, salty breeze of a Greek island. 
No, it's the spray flying from an octopus being slapped over and over against a rock by a fisherman wearing a swimsuit the size of a rat's hammock. Now I take a seat in a beachside cafe and ponder a menu under a bare, dangling light bulb. I'm surrounded by the happy clicking of backgammon boards and leathery locals picking through fruits of the sea. A woman wraps a steamy pita bread around my souflaki. No, as I awaken, I realize it's the flight attendant with a tray of hot towels. Smothering my face in steamy cotton, I savor that Greek moment while stretching the kinks out of my neck. As nine hours creep by, my toes swell up. After a couple of laps up and down the aisle, they no longer rub. The good time gang hangs out in the back next to the orange juice pitchers. The occupied sign on the toilet door always prompts the same question. What is she doing in there? Finally, like the happy launch of a pinball, the fastened seatbelts bell pings and the pilot announces that we're preparing to land. Please return to your seats. Our descent begins with a stomach-elevating jolt that sends me hurrying back to my seat. Reaching delicately under the woman next to me for the end of my seatbelt, I snug myself down. I used to say a prayer for safety and remove the potentially deadly pen from my shirt pocket before each landing, but flying no longer scares me. A particularly believable United Airlines pilot once told me he'd have bruises from his seatbelt before turbulence would concern him. Offering further comfort, he explained that a plane doesn't land like a javelin. The pilot is still flying the plane even after touchdown. I told him I worried that a small skid or wiggle could cause the wingtip to graze the ground, sending this people-filled tube into a flaming tumble. Not as long as the pilot is steady at the wheel, he assured me, explaining that slowly and on his terms, the pilot gives custody of the plane back to Earth. Minutes later, with my travel dreams raised and in their upright and locked positions, we rumbled to a halt. The pilot, ever in control, takes the opportunity to say, Welcome in Amsterdam. Harlem before Nirvana. Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport offers a no-stress but sterile introduction to Europe. The seeds of cultural homogenization must come in by air, sprouting first in and around airports. Even communication problems are weeded out. Because in Dutch, A is pronounced ah, E is A, and I is E, you won't even find any gates identified by those potentially confusing letters. In the scramble to turn airports into shopping malls, Schiphol is a prize winner, voted best in Europe by business people whose priorities matter most. Corporate banners, not windmills, blow in the Dutch breeze. The sandy, below-sea-level land still looks newly reclaimed. It's littered with sprawling rent-a-car lots and glassy office parks that missed the Houston exit. Hoping to glean some new insight into the Dutch youth culture, I share a seat on the bus with a kid just getting off work at the airport. I say I'm from Seattle. A fan of the grunge band Nirvana, he's still mourning the death of its lead singer, Kurt Cobain. Any chance of a discussion of Dutch culture vanishes. As we glide over and under huge freeways, I mourn the passing of a quaint, traditional Europe. We sit side by side in silence, each lamenting the loss of something entirely different. Then the bus dips under a sailboat navigating a canal freeway overpass. Suddenly, our century is replaced by an earlier one, and we pull into the tidy market town of Harlem. A Dutch master's kind of town, Harlem is a good place to start a European trip. In small-town Holland, cultural differences are obvious, and travel is easy. Harlem is a cultural wading pool that slopes gradually into the more challenging waters of Central Europe. 
I hop off the bus and set my sights on Harlem's towering church spire. It's said, a society builds its highest monuments to its greatest gods. But this spire towers over a community that worships trade. Much of the architecture of today's Old Holland is from the 1600s. That was Holland's golden age, when merchants ruled the waves, stockpiled profits, and hired Rembrandt to paint their portraits. While Harlem has its fancy old guild halls and businesses reigned here for centuries, the town's strictly enforced building code assures that the church tower will always dominate the downtown. After the futuristic Schiphol Airport, Harlem's Market Square cheers me with a festival of flowers, bright bolts of cloth, evangelical cheese pushers, and warm, gooey stroopwafels. The carillon clangs with an out-of-tune sweetness only a medieval church clock tower can possess. Savoring the cheery dissonance, a street vendor named Jos dishes up herring. The sign on his van reads, Jos Haring, gesund and lecker, healthy and delicious. I order by pointing and ask, gesund? Jos hands me what looks more like bait than lunch and says, and lecker. I stand there, not sure what to do with my bait, apparently looking lost. Jos, a huge man who towers over his white fishy counter, mimes swallowing a sword and says, I give you the herring Rotterdam style. You eat it like this. If I chop it up and give you these, he points to the toothpicks, this is Amsterdam style. As I take a bite, he asks, you like it? Even with three R's in the delicious, it's salty is the only polite response I can muster. Yes, this is not raw. It is pickled in salt. Great in the hot weather. You sweat, you need salt. You eat my herring. Taking tiny bites, I wander deeper into the market, happy that Yos is piling chopped onion on herring rather than dealing in Happy Meals. Under high-stepping gables and yawning awnings, the square bustles expertly with the same commercial game it's practiced for centuries. In the town museum, 350-year-old paintings by hometown boy Franz Halls show the same square, hotel buildings, market bustle, and church. A noisy traffic circle in the 1960s, the now car-free area has become the town's social and psychological hub, the civic living room. Dodging flower-laden one-speeds, I feel like part of the family here. America is gone. Schiphol is gone. I'm in Europe with raw herring breath. Tent-like market stalls lead to red-brick guild halls. And above it all rises the Grotkerk, great church. The church, like all medieval churches, was built facing east to Jerusalem. But once inside, all eyes turn to the west wall, where its pipe organ, an Oz-like tower of musical power, reaches nearly a hundred feet to the ceiling. Cupids swing from the largest of 5,000 pipes, while gilded angelic trumpeters seem stuck in an 18th century game of statue maker. Mozart trilled here. The Dutch, among the least church-going people in Europe, are mostly Protestant. While Catholics fill their churches with visual riches, the more Puritan Protestants keep theirs plain. But the irrepressible need to praise God with art vented itself in music. After the Reformation, choirmasters like Bach gained importance and Protestant organs grew. It's Franz, not Franz. Harlem's Hotel Carillon overlooks the market square. In my tiny room, under a slanted roof on the top floor, I open my window to let the happy sound of the market in with the sunshine. Hotel Carillon is named for the bells that pack the Grotkirk Tower. They entertain through the day and, like friends who don't know when to quit, keep sleepy tourists awake through the night. 
Tossing my bag on the bed, I head down for a Geneva with Franz. Franz, who owns the hotel, artfully pours me a Dutch gin so full I can't pick it up without spilling. Like the country in general, Dutch gin glasses are small, only a skinny three inches tall, but expertly filled. I always feel like I could have been Franz. We're both 42, both have a boy and a younger girl, both wear glasses, and we even look alike. Franz, too, owns a business that gets too big a slice of his life, and he knows it. Franz wears a weary businessman's face, full of ideals and a European self-confidence on how things should be done, but worn down by the cumbersome regulations and tax burdens the small business people of Europe must bear. As is the trend throughout Europe, Franz has gone from ye old to yuppie. He replaced the antique wood beams in his restaurant with chrome and ferns. But his latter steep stairs still lead to ramshackle rooms. I still have to prop open my window with a trash basket and level my bed on its medieval floor with tourist brochures. As I sip the top off my drink, Franz puts his elbow on the table and his chin in one hand. He shakes a copy of my guidebook at me with the other hand and drills me with eye contact. Rick, he says, you spelled me Deutsch, Franz. I am Dutch, Franz, with an S, not a Z. The Dutch live under a German shadow. While the Dutch rib the Germans good-naturedly, they rib them nevertheless, and refer to them as uninvited guests when speaking of the Nazi occupation. The scars of World War II persist. Old bumper stickers said, I want my grandfather's bike back. The new versions read, You can keep the bike. I have a better one now. Like others in Holland, Franz's family suffered under German occupation. Grandfathers starved so children could live. An entire generation of Dutch who grew up during the war and survived the hunger winter of 1944 are shorter than their countrymen. Franz fetches a room key for a tourist heading upstairs, then sits back down. The year 1944 was the last and hungriest year of the Nazi occupation, he says. People ate the tulip bulbs only to have something in their stomachs. Today we eat well. Our youth are the tallest in the world. And no one invades anymore, I add cheerfully. Franz motions to the outdoor tables filled with vacationers and corrects me. No, Rick, each summer the Germans invade once again. I add, they like the sandy beaches of Schreveningen. I'm referring to the nearby resort, and Franz agrees. Schreveningen is filled with Germans. They plant a flag next to their beach blanket. As a kid, I say, I visited Schreveningen for the Flintstone Center on the amusement pier and to watch Dutch girls on the trampolines. Franz smiles. I tell him how one night I got a history lesson to boot. Hearing a German mispronounce her town's name, my waitress whispered, It's Schreveningen. We Dutch use this word to test for German spies. If he could say it, he was Dutch. If not, he was a spy. Pointing to the boisterous table of holidaymakers, Franz says, Today, Germans get their Heineken either way. Going Dutch. Franz is stuck behind his hotel desk, but I'm not. It's early afternoon and the merchants are packing up their stalls. I hike through the now-empty market across town to drop by the home of my friends Hans and Mariette de Kefte. They run what I consider to be the ideal bed and breakfast. Hans, with a wiry 40-year-old body and a good-looking toothy smile, has determined with German precision how to maintain the optimal pain-pleasure ratio. As if learning from Franz's failure, Hans has domesticated his work life. He's seen the world 
Ever since Nepal, he's stowed his wristwatch. Now, having quit his desk job, Hans is in charge of injecting Personality Plus into the family B&B. His wife, Bouncy Mariette, with a head of wispy strawberry blonde hair, red tennis shoes, and a knack for assembling a Salvation Army chic outfit for under $20, is the sentimental half of this team. On each of my visits, my friends show me a new slice of Holland, and I renew my belief that the more you know about Europe, the more you'll uncover what's worth exploring. Within minutes, we've motored out of Harlem and into polder country, vast tracts of reclaimed fertile land. It's early summer, and the landscape is streaked with yellow and orange tulip fields. Windmills were used to pump the polders dry. Once the conquerors of the sea, but now useless relics, they decorate the land like medallions on a war vet's chest. Some Dutch think the name Holland comes from the German Hell Land. From an invader's point of view, the land was too marshy and the people too feisty. But my drive with Hans and Mariette reminds me that, from a tourist point of view, Holland is precisely the opposite. If tourists are cultural beachcombers in search of clichés, Holland is a beach after a storm. Hans points out another windmill. I tell him, every time I take a tour group through Holland's countryside, someone in the back of the bus marvels, everything's so Dutch. Hans then turns sharply, stopping at the gate of a large fenced-in parking lot. There's a circular drive lined with covered bus stop-type benches painted pink. From there, a lane leads to what looks like a 20-stall drive through car wash. The sign reads, Tipple Zone, open from 2100 until 3. Hans looks at me like a professor about to make his point. Okay, I say, what is tipple? Hans tiptoes his fingers lightly across the dashboard by way of illustration. Tipple is how a mouse walks. Very soft, he explains. This is a drive-in red light district. Prostitutes. You say everything's so Dutch. This is Dutch, too. I imagine a busy Saturday night with women stationed at each pink bench, a bumper-to-bumper parade of shoppers, and cars privately rocking in the drive through stalls. My treasured, cozy images are under attack. I cling to memories of a time when morning rush hour in Holland featured intersections clogged with bikers, wooden shoes lashed to their handlebars, heading for the fields. Although wooden shoes still keep some feet dry in the boggy fields, these days a tourist will more likely see them used as flower pots nailed to souvenir shop windowsills. That Dutch boy of my travel dreams is off smoking somewhere with the Swiss Miss, or waiting for a 2100 tipple. We move on, motoring past sprawling flower mogul mansions, then through desolate dunes. The tiny road dwindles to a trailhead. Hans parks the car, and we hike to a peaceful stretch of North Sea Beach. While Hans and I work up a sweat solving the world's problems during a blustery oceanfront walk, Mariette lags behind, collecting shells with the wide-eyed wonder of a ten-year-old. Cheap souvenirs, Hans says. One cliché the Dutch don't dispute is their frugality. Hans quizzes me. Who invented copper wire? Two Dutch boys fighting over a penny, he says. And how did the Dutch take a census? We roll a gilder coin through each town and count the people who come running out. While mythical locals may chase coins, the Dutch economy is strong. Throughout northern Europe, as populations age, governments are tightening up on cradle-to-grave security. Although a bit more restrained than it used to be, the Dutch government's generosity survives. For instance, college used to be free, with living expenses included. 
Today, although it's still free for the poor, a university education costs most students about $1,300 a year plus room and board. Post-baby boom Dutch, who foresee a Holland with half its population over 65, expect to provide for their own retirement. Savings here are the highest in Europe. Despite the prostitutes lounging in windows and the sweet smell of pot filling many coffee shops, the Dutch are conservative people. The same spirit that drove the Dutch to create their land drives them to creatively manage the life on it. Their live-and-let-live attitude is actually a practical answer to many of their social problems. Hans explains, We subsidize our social problems to death. The government gives the Hells Angels money for a clubhouse and a place to park their bikes, but only if they behave. We have a union for the unemployed. And for prostitutes having trouble with drugs and disease, there is even a hooker's union. Referring to that government-sponsored park-and-ride program, Hans says, Because of the AIDS problem, the tipple zone comes with a clinic and comfortable lounge for the girls. These are streetwalkers, heroin girls, the most desperate kind of prostitute. They know the only place they're allowed to work with no trouble from the police is here. And in the lounge, a social worker and a doctor gain their confidence. If they get AIDS, they go to a special home. That's expensive, I say. Not as expensive as having them roam the streets spreading their disease. Rotterdam keeps its prostitutes on a boat. Hans moves from sex for sale to commerce in general. Pointing a stick of driftwood at a huge seagoing tanker, he says, that ship's going to the big port at Rotterdam. We're clever at trade. We have to be. We're a small country. Holland welcomes the world's business, and readily accepted immigrants have contributed to the rich Dutch economy for centuries. When the Jews, expelled from Spain and fleeing many parts of Europe, were welcomed into the 16th and 17th centuries, they brought trading connections and banking savvy along with them. Dutch trade boomed with Jewish help. This openness to immigrants has continued. Hungarians who fled to Holland after their failed 1956 revolution, Spanish and Portuguese, have all found ways to weave their lives into the ever-colorful social tapestry of Holland. But Holland is not designed for big shots. Hans explains, being ordinary is being prudent. If you grow above the grains, you'll get your head cut off. We don't have a Michael Jackson or a Madonna. Even our queen prefers to do her own shopping. But Europe is uniting, I say. Everything is becoming more aggressive, more American. Yes, we're Americanizing in some ways, Hans agrees, but we will never allow bag ladies in our streets. Here in Europe we have kings and queens, but class differences are smaller than in the States. Our workers enjoy top job security, 25 days of paid vacation, and higher wages than yours. American politicians talk only of the middle class, I say, not of the poor. Americans are the seeing blind about understanding class differences, Hans replies. We have a fear of Marx, I say. Hans responds, Americans are so convinced Marx was wrong, they can't see the growing gap between rich and poor. Business owners sell off the workers' pension plans and take the money. Nobody complains. Don't fear a race war. If you have a war, it will be a class war. I say, the American dream is of impossible wealth. I tell Hans of being stuck in traffic with a Chicago cabbie who was going nowhere in the land of promise. He drummed happily on his steering wheel of his ramshackle car, pointing to a flashing girl's sign at a local bar and declared, America, where else can women dance on tables and go home with $500? And think of it, I could win the lotto and become a millionaire. Mariette scuffs through the sand, pockets full of seashells. 
Under big, romping white clouds, her scarf flapping in the wind like a jump rope, she's surrounded by Holland. As we wait for her to catch up, I scold myself for leaving my camera at the hotel. Just when I'm about to tuck Mariette into my sweet and meek kitten lover file, she backs me down to the surf, sticks an animal rights flyer in my pocket, and demands that I delete all mention of bullfighting from my Spain guidebook. Amster, Amster, Dam, Dam, Dam. A 20-minute train ride takes me from cute Harlem to big, bold Amsterdam, where the lions of the city seal high atop the Amsterdam train station seem to roar, just do it. Stepping from the train station, I look down Damrak, the main drag, which flushes visitors past cheers of commercial neon into the old center. It's always been this way. After all, long before there was a train station here, the Amstel River passed through the city following the route of today's Damrak. Like no city in Europe, Amsterdam opens like a fan dance out of its train station. Breaking all rules of cartography, the map of Amsterdam is the only map in my guidebooks that has north on the bottom. Like a tree of life, it just seems right for a trading center to bloom from that lifeline to the world. In the 16th century, Amsterdam was a fortified marina of 30,000 people, mostly merchants, who welcomed ships loaded with material delights from every corner of the trading world. Clever, buoyant slings raised the most heavily laden ships enough to allow them to navigate the shallow waters. Ships would parade like pirates with plunder to the commercial altar of the town, the customs and wayhouse next to the city hall on Dam Square, the main square, where they docked and unloaded. Today, the trade still comes, but to a different port, nearby Rotterdam, the biggest port in the world. The Dutch claim that money is made in Rotterdam, where shirts are sold with sleeves already rolled up, divided in Den Haag, or The Hague, where the government resides, and spent here in Amsterdam. Outside the station, trams glide by and tourists huddle with room hustlers. Street people, wearing stocking hats over matted hair, black boots, and heavy coats in the sun, choose the most public places in town to snooze. Children pedal to school as if in a small town, and pairs of police add no stress to the laid-back scene. Tourists pop out of the station, eager to explore. First-time sightseers leaving the city station carry a predictable checklist of sights. The Anne Frank House is on the right, the Red Light District is on the left, and Damrak leads straight through the middle towards two great museums. Filled with works by Van Gogh and Rembrandt, they stand like cultural bulldogs on the opposite side of town. Today, my only agenda is to simply wander the streets after a cup of coffee. As I stand for a moment on the breezy deck of a floating canal-side cafe assessing the seating choices, I find myself looking into the sad dog eyes of an American girl. As if expecting me, she says, Rick, I'm not doing so very well. Enjoying the chance to be a two-bit angel Gabriel, I sit down and assure her that it's natural for the fresh-off-the-plane tourist to feel overwhelmed. I look over her sightseeing plans and encourage her to take refuge in cozier Harlem if necessary. Then I direct her eyes above the trash-filled streets, past prowling men and scary-looking derelicts, angry they have nothing left to pierce. I tell her the very best of Amsterdam is high, pan up. Our eyes rest for a fine, silent moment on bright white clouds blowing behind gables of a golden age. As I settle into my trip notes, she surprises me with a local goodbye. With a confident tootsines and a smile, she's on her way. Because of my TV series, I'm better known among Americans in Europe than I am on the streets of my hometown. And while people apologize for invading my privacy, I enjoy meeting people, whether struggling or savvy, immersed in Europe. 
In traditional Dutch coffee houses, thick little rugs are draped over the tables and coffee is served with a classy little ginger cookie. On this visit, I get the cookie, but I miss the little rug, a victim of new hygiene laws. As the coffee dissolves a nibble of my ginger cookie, it occurs to me that, one by one, the fine points that distinguish different cultures are sadly giving way to prosperity, efficiency, and modern living. Each year, more of my cultural fancies are driven into the theme parks and hotel fantasy rooms. That leaves me awkwardly craving tourist clichés and wondering if my image of Europe isn't just wishful thinking. I leave the café and follow the crowds down Damrak. Today, Damrak is about as traditionally Dutch as dancing the hora. Wooden shoes are crucified on a wall between a change bureau and the sex museum. The Venus Temple promises a look at sex through the ages that includes a sado club, the torture tower, and the oldest sex shop in Amsterdam, all for three guilders and 95 cents. Visitors are stopped first by the poster of Marilyn Monroe fighting that Randy Gale. Then they're lured in by a sultry mannequin wearing a provocative dress and a huge smile as she rides a bicycle with a single, hard-working piston. The damrack makes me feel moralistic. A neon change sign in the bank window seems to preach a conversion that has little to do with money. The damrack is why I sleep in small-town Harlem. Just past a gimmicky new torture museum and a thumping Hooters restaurant, the sound of an old-time barrel organ revives traditional Amsterdam and cheers me up. It's a two-man affair. While Grandpa works the crowd, the boss is in the back, spinning a wheel and feeding tunes punched into a scroll as if feeding bullets into a musical machine gun. The street organ is a mini carnival, painted in candy-colored pastels and peopled with busy figurines. Whittled ballerinas twitch to ring bells while crackerjack boys crash silver-dollar-sized cymbals. Playing his coin-tin maracas and wearing a carved-on smile, the old man looks like an ornamental statue that has just leapt to life. While shoppers trudge by, two tourists break into a merry waltz. Another hugs a daybag between her knees and snaps a photo while her buddy winks into his camcorder. Nearby, the Flamse Fritz kiosk is painted with great art. This art has a purpose, to make you hungry for Flemish-style French fries. On one side of the kiosk, God gives Adam the cone of fries. A variation on this decorates the Sistine Chapel. On the opposite side is Van Gogh's famous French-fried potato eaters. The peasants, for whom Vincent always had an affinity, are shown solemnly sitting down to a bountiful platter of bright yellow fries. All they need is the mayonnaise. That's the Flemish choice over ketchup. I warm my hands around my cone of salty fries and continue to wander. In Amsterdam, cobbled roller coaster roads connect a total of 1,300 bridges that cross 75 miles of peaceful green canals. Houses jostle for a canal view. As their foundations of pilings rot or settle, they lean on each other, looking as if someone has stolen their crutches. Reclaimed land and canals are tough to build on. In buildings throughout Holland, foundations account for about 20% of total building costs. Scanning a tipsy row of canal houses, I can tell who skimped on the foundation work. Parking is tricky in downtown Amsterdam. Regulations are strictly enforced. Recently, the Amsterdam Fire Brigade had to push a car into the canal to get to a fire. Wheel clamps, a Dutch innovation, are a common sight along the canals. Parking restrictions notwithstanding, Amsterdam means freedom, religious freedom, freedom to pierce your body, freedom to flash a tourist-laden sightseeing boat, freedom to roll with a prostitute or roll a joint. 
The pilgrims stopped here for a taste of religious freedom en route to the New Land. Nearly 400 years later, Newlanders still see Amsterdam as a beacon of freedom. The Dutch are a principled people and will fight small issues as if they were big ones. One wealthy Amsterdammer protested new parking restrictions by buying old cars and simply leaving them around town to be impounded. When the government initiated a high-occupancy vehicle lane to lessen traffic congestion, a local taxpayer contested the notion of a lane paid for by all but open only to carpoolers. He won. The one law in Holland that nobody contests, discrimination is wrong and all should be treated as equals. Frozen Dutch Treat With all this tolerance, what's the Dutchman's favorite temptation? My friend Hans best enjoys his country on crisp February days, when he can skate the canals from town to town through Holland's farm country. Imagine this, he says, cold wind at your back, warm sun on your face. If the ice is good, you have a smooth rhythm. I hold my hands behind my back, and it's only me and our big, big sky. Hans continues, a trip of 60 kilometers is a good afternoon. With bad luck, you get way, way out and find your dream becomes a nightmare. Snowfall means you walk home. Rainfall means you struggle home through the puddles missing holes marked with sticks and ducks. For me, a good day skating is better than skiing in the Alps. The world is still. It's quiet. The fields stretch and stretch. A church steeple marks the next town. Crossing under a bridge, you're in the town center. The pub invites you to come in and warm up. Rubber mats lead from the canal to its door. Inside, we have a big fire and steamy windows. Lawyers, doctors, the farmers, and students. Everybody is together and warm. Cross-country skating, we are all equal. All just simple Dutch boys.